Okay, today we're going to be in Judges chapter 1. The last time that I taught, we finished up the book of Joshua, and tonight, of course, we'll be starting with the first chapter of Judges. How many of you read um, the book by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities? I had to read that in high school. Well, I'm sure if you, even if you didn't read the book, you've heard the phrase, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So most of you have heard that. It's, it's very common the way it starts off. And, and I look at this book like that. I mean, it was the best of times in that, you know, they were still God's people. They still had the promised land. They still had the promises of God. But it was the worst of times in that they disobeyed God. They were sinful. They were rebellious. And, you know, it brought them a lot of heartache. Brought them a lot of heartache. Um, and even in a, a lot of in our lives, we can look at some of the things that have happened. And uh, often as a result of sin, whether our own sin or somebody else's sin, we have heartache, even in this, in this present time. Uh, or even the fact that it's a sinful world and it's a, it's a fallen creation. But it's a very interesting book. And, and again, it, it gets a little, uh, maybe for lack of a better word, depressing because you see that people keep falling into this rut. But it's a good lesson for us. It really is. And in, the, in God's word, there's so much love and there's so much encouragement. But there's also the hard reality of sin and the effects of it. So uh, starting with chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first five verses. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now, what you have in, in a basic setting is Joshua dies, and then the leadership reverts back from a central leader, in terms of Moses, Joshua, back to tribal sovereignty. So instead of a central figurehead, central leader, you've got the tribes, and they're kind of judging, ruling themselves. Uh, but even though there's no Moses and there's no Joshua, they can still hear from the Lord. It doesn't matter who the leader is or isn't, because our leader ultimately is God. So they still had the same opportunities to follow God, even without these, these strong, dynamic figures. And really, when you look at their personal lives in the scripture, we look at them in the Charlton Heston and the, the streaks of gray and black, and he's got the rod, and man, that just gives you chills, you know? But these were regular guys, you know, and, and they had faults, just like we do. But I want to read, um, Wearsby is good in summing up things on page 12, when he talks about, you know, I don't want to say what he's saying. I'd rather just read what he says because it's really good. He said, um, Moses had appointed Joshua as his successor, but later God didn't command Joshua to name a successor. It's interesting. These circumstances somewhat parallel the situation of the church in the world today. Unfortunately, God's people aren't working together to defeat the enemy, but here and there, God is raising up men and women of faith who are experiencing his blessing and power and are leading his people to victory. And how true that is. There's pockets of people who are really reading the word, really being changed by the word, really doing great things in the name of Christ, and he's our leader. 
And then there's people under the guise of Christianity who are, it's a social club or it's, it's something that, to draw people in and the numbers are important and the money coming in. And it's totally not about Christ. So you kind of see we're almost in a, in a time of tribal sovereignty. But again, Jesus is our leader. Verse 1. I, I call this, you know, the children of Israel asked the Lord saying, Who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? I call this a Kodak moment. Because the children of Israel asked the Lord, hey, we want to be obedient in your mandate to wipe out the Canaanites. Unfortunately, that Kodak moment doesn't last long. And, you know, sometimes even in our own lives, we can see ourselves. You know, I think Christians can be a little sanctimonious in uh, looking back at the children of Israel and just, just having negative things to say about them. But we could see a lot of their faults and interject that into our own lives. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, I mean, how many people you know, made New Year's resolutions, and it's not even the end of January, and how many people have broken them already, you know? We can't even make, we don't make commitments to ourselves, even the commitments that we make to the Lord, sadly enough, sometimes we, it kind of wanes, and we, oh yeah, I did promise the Lord that, or I did make that commitment. But we even see that in the Canaanites' ability to regroup and repopulate, because they weren't completely destroyed, and it was disobedience there. The armies were conquered, many were slain, but they didn't completely sanitize the land. Joshua 13.1 embodies that. Just one verse. He says, Joshua 13.1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years. And there he, very, God's very frank, you know, very candid. <laughs> and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. So even Joshua, towards the end of his life, you know, the, the general mandate to, to take that land to Canaan was there. But, you know, there still was some pockets left and some land. And, you know, it's kind of tough over there. We're going to stay away. So you, you, you kind of see that. But God said completely wipe them out. And it's almost as if the people were like, you know, they were tired of warfare. You know, we're kind of tired. We're kind of settled in. And, and they just didn't completely fulfill their mandate that God had, had told them to fulfill. And verse 2, the children of, of Israel versus the Canaanites. What is God's response? I've already delivered them, delivered the land into your hand. God says it's a done deal. Isn't that amazing? God said, it's a done deal. I've already done it, as if it was the past tense, but it didn't happen yet, you see. All you have to do is lay hold of it, take it. Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8, was one of the places where God promises to dispossess the people. Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8, that's just one place. And as we'll see, they largely didn't. And again, we can, we can put that to our own lives in the Christian life. How many things do we miss out on that are a done deal? That God says in the past tense to you, you know, to Bobby or to Nancy or to Susan, the Lord says it's a done deal. I already did this. Now just lay hold of it, and we don't do it. It's very tragic, but we can see it in our own lives, right? And I have to admit, um, from our perspective, sometimes it seems very difficult. And I'm sure from their perspective, it seemed very difficult. And, of, and of course, let me not uh, uh, candy coat this. There was a sin element, too. It was a rebellion issue. So that's important to note. Verse 3. So Simeon and Judah team up to be the first ones to go against the Canaanites. A little bit about Judah, Judah and Simeon. They were brothers, obviously. But they were both sons of Leah. Remember Rachel and Leah? They were both had the same mother, um, you know, the, the tribal heads. And Simeon had his inheritance inside of Judah. 
And we see that in Joshua 19.1. So there was a closeness there. Verse 5. So they fight against this guy named Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Now, Adonai just means Lord, uh, so his name was Lord of Bezek, or or the king of Bezek. So that was his name, was a title, it was almost um, who he was. It, It explained him. Bezek means scattering, and it was a town near Jerusalem. Verse 6, then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather their food under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now, on the surface, this seems cruel. Certainly, if there was an ACLU at that time, they'd be suing God and the children of Israel all the time, (laughs) because I'm sure a lot of these things they'd be horrified at. Uh, But Deuteronomy 7, uh, 1 through 2, God says this. He said, to conquer and to utterly destroy. No treaties, no slavery, no maiming, just destroy them. So a lot of times people look at the Bible and say, gee, this is a violent book. You know, they cut off their thumbs and big toes. That must have really hurt. It must have been painful. It was cruel. But God didn't say to cut off their thumbs and big toes. He said, you know, sanitize the land and, and get, it, get it done with. Not, he's, God's not a torturer. But this was an unusual punishment. A little bit about thumbs and big toes. Uh, if you study anatomy and physiology, uh, the thumbs and the big toes are big. And, well, <laughs> That just came out. I didn't mean it that way. I meant big in in scope, okay, what they do. And what happens is they hamper your ability to be independent, in a sense relegate you to slavery. The big toe causes, uh, allows stability for the foot, okay? Uh, There's a way that the foot pronates, and there's there's a certain biomechanics to the foot. And the big toe has a big part in that biomechanics. The thumbs, of course, um, with just the four fingers, the thumbs help to grasp and to do a lot of things again it's it's fun stuff that i like to study but the bottom line is without your thumb and your big toe in those days it would be very hard to run away from your captor okay very very difficult to run pretty much you're your hamstrung and to wield a sword it would almost be impossible with that thumb to grasp that sword you could never really you know hook it in there so you can't defend yourself you can't run away you're basically relegated to slavery um adonai bezek again He confesses that he received the same cruel punishment that he inflicted on 70 other kings. So there's a confession there. Hey, I did this to 70 other kings. And he's kind of lamenting. Uh, I don't really feel sorry for this guy. I think it's you reap what you sow. If you look at Hitler's demise, if you look at Joseph Stalin on his deathbed, if you read history, he was tormented in his thoughts. I don't, there's different reports of whether he came to the Lord or not. Uh, There was, you know, only his, his closest people were with him. Many other cruel leaders eventually come face to face with their demons. You know, you reap what you sow. Now, there's an issue between unrepentance and repentance. The unrepentant is going to die in torment if they're not repentant towards God. And that's just the way it is. But everyone has the opportunity. Stalin, Hitler, any of the worst leaders always have the opportunity to repent and ask to be forgiven for their sins, to turn from their life and move forward. But a lot of people don't choose that. How did Adonai Bezek die? Could have died from infection. He could have been so humiliated by being helpless that he refused to eat or take care of himself. And again, this is just me. I like to interject myself into biblical characters. It's speculation. I don't know how he died. It just says that he died. Um, but he said, God has repaid me. 
He could have properly been recognizing his punishment as divine judgment from the Lord. Just because he said it, now remember, doesn't mean that it's true. Or he could have just been remorseful. And that's just what he thought. But, you know, we don't know exactly why. I honestly believe that they just should have killed him because that's what God said to do instead of torturing him. So I really don't think God wanted him to be tortured. Okay. Um, And again, you look at hardened criminals. That's where my forte comes in as a police officer. Um, These guys have long rap sheets. And that sin, eventually, it piles up and it piles up. And some of these guys die in prison. Some of them are killed by fellow inmates. Some are, um, you know, shot, you know, by law enforcement. Some have drug overdoses. And, and that's what happens with sin. You reap what you sow. But here's the good news. You know, that's the bad news. And there's always good news. The good news is this. All that gets washed away with another law, okay? When, when, a, when a, a several thousand ton plane is, is on the ground on the runway, you can't imagine that thing in the air. But there's another law called Bernoulli's principle, and I believe it's the second law of motion, that supersedes gravity. And it keeps that plane in the air, that very heavy plane that should crash to the earth. Here, there's the law of sin and death, but there's also another law that supersedes these, these awful things that are reality, and that's forgiveness in Christ. But there first must be repentance. So any of these awful things that happen to these people because of sin can be reversed with true repentance and forgiveness in Christ. So that's the good news. Verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains and in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Erba. And they killed Shishai, Ahaman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Now, when it says the south, the alternate translation is the Negev. Okay, some of these places, Hebron and Debir, are roughly 15 miles south of Jerusalem and west of the Dead Sea. If you've got a good mind for geography or you've got one of your maps, again, it's sort of in the vicinity of, of Jerusalem but south. The word Negev, which is also the, the word south, is used for Negev. Today, if you look up in the dictionary, Negev in Israel is the desert region in southern Israel, which makes up the majority of Israel's official southern district. The origin of the word Negev is from the Hebrew root denoting dry, hence the desert. In the Bible, the word Negev is also used for the direction south, so it has a dual meaning. In verses 10 and 11, what's interesting here is, If you've been here for the Joshua study, you'll notice that some of the things I'm going to read sound familiar. Hey, where did I hear that before? Verses 10 and 11 were taken right out of Joshua 15, 13 through 15. So you've you've heard that before. Uh, And in there, you see the victory against the sons of Anak, the giants, was directly attributed to Caleb in the book of Joshua, although here, in general, it says that Judah took it. Okay, so... um, Caleb, under, under Judah, took these places, killed these sons, and he got this land. And again, this is a, a reiteration of what we saw in Joshua. Verse 12. Then Caleb said, he who attacks Kirjath, and this is going to sound familiar to you also. He who attacks uh, Kirjath, Sefer, and takes it, to him I will give my daughter, Aishah, as wife. 
and Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aishsa as wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now this is, again, should sound very familiar for you, to you because it comes right out of Joshua 15, 16 through 19, word for word, which we went over in Joshua. Now three points here. Hsa, I like her, this young lady. She's got a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> and in Hebrew, chutzpah just means audacity. So she's telling her husband, hey, this land is useless without those springs. Tell them we need the springs too. So they got the springs. The second point, Othniel, in Hebrew means God is force. God is force. Now we see Othniel again because apparently in Judges chapter 3, he becomes one of Israel's first judges. Okay, so Othniel is going to come up again. The third point, Joshua is believed to be written by Joshua. Judges is probably written by Samuel, it's believed. Uh, And since this book was written about the Judges period, they probably put these excerpts from Joshua into Judges to basically capture the time period right after Joshua's death, which kicked off the Judges period. So what we have is a, a little bit of a redundancy, a little bit of an overlapping, because the author of Judges wants to just kind of talk about that uh, the death of, of Joshua and then what happens afterwards. So we see a little bit of repeating. Verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, And they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Okay, just a little bit of the geography again. I think it's important to know. Um, The city of Palms was, was Jericho, and that was just north of the Dead Sea on the west side of the Jordan. And that should be familiar to you because that's where the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River uh, and they ended up in, in Jericho, into the Promised Land. Arad and Hormah were cities just west of the Dead Sea on the southern end of the Dead Sea. And Gaza, Ekron, and Ashkelon were all Philistine cities within 15 miles of each other on the coast of the Mediterranean. Now, if you follow all these cities conquered, that Judah and Simeon are conquering, starting from Bezek. If you could envision this, and next Wednesday I'm going to be teaching the rest of uh, Judges. I'm going to give you the maps again. But they take a, it's almost like they make a scoop from the Dead Sea south, and they kind of scoop and go all the way out to the Mediterranean. So they kind of do this. And what should seem familiar to you is they had to clean up the land all over again. And you may say, wait, wait a minute, what, what about Joshua? Remember, they left those pockets, okay, and we're going to go into that. And these people were able to regroup, etc., and they were a problem again. So, they, so um, you know, in Judges, they've got to come back down and start cleaning the land up again. Kind of reminds me of antibiotics. I mean, you know, 
I couldn't think of anything better. If you're taking your course of antibiotics and you're trying to kill the germs and you don't finish the course, you get a superbug, right? And then you've got problems again because now the infection's still in your system and a lot of times it comes back with a vengeance. It's worse. So I look at it like this. God told them to do this and they didn't do it completely and the superbug came up. So they had to, Judy and Simeon had to go back down and clean out the land again. Now, the Kenites helped. The Kenites were allies of Israel through Moses' marriage, reading the text. A little bit about the Kenites. They were nomadic people. Um, Kenite comes from Ken, or the Hebrew word Kayan, or Kayan, which means metalsmith or metal worker. So the, so the speculation is that, or outright, is that these guys worked with metal, uh, and hence the name Kenites, and they probably helped out the children of Israel with making weapons and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting to look at. Okay. Was it cruel to exterminate the Canaanites? The answer is no. God was patient. God gave them, I believe it was 400 years to repent, gave them space. And even when it came time to destroy them, some or many, we don't know how many, like Rahab and her family, repented and they believed and they were spared. If you remember... Um, you know, the, the spies came in and, and she said, we, we've heard about your God. We fear your God, some of us anyway. And, he sa- and she said, will you spare us? And he said, sure, get as many people as you can in that one house, you and your family, hang the, the red cord outside. Uh, and if you really believe in our God and you really, you know, this is what you're saying is true and you've really repented, when the invading children of Israel come and they see that cord, they'll spare that, that home. And anybody who does attack those in the home, their life will be required of it. So you see, the the Canaanites had plenty of time to stop murdering their children, to stop burning their babies alive in the fire to these false idols, to stop doing these awful, awful practices. Uh, But God eventually had enough, and he had to deal with them. The Canaanites are a picture of God's continued war with sin. G. Campbell Morgan said it best. Uh, He said, quote, God is perpetually at war with sin. That is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites, period, end quote. If we have a problem with what we see and we have a problem with what happened, our problem is with God. Our problem really is with our understanding of sin, which is a big problem in the Western church. I think that we have become so desensitized to sin in our culture that many Christians wouldn't know sin if it hit them over the head like a brick. It's just the way it is in our country. We're desensitized. We see it every day. Uh, We see it in in multimedia. We see whether it's sexuality or death or, you know, or whatever. There's always an excuse for it. There's always a reason for it. There's always a, a, a rationalization for it. We don't see it, and sometimes we don't want to see it in our own lives. Sin. It's a dirty word, isn't it? And you know what's funny? If we were a seeker-friendly church or if we were in the emergent church movement, I wouldn't be talking about this because it's not pleasant. It's not a pleasant subject. But if I tell you about the love of God, if I tell you about Jesus as our Savior, if I tell you how great God is and how he sacrificed his son for us and then I stop, the story makes no sense because what is the Savior saving us from? He's saving us from our own awful sin that got us in this mess in the first place. And our, the sin of our federal head parents, Adam and Eve, that started the ball rolling, you see. We don't want to see sin in our friends' lives, in the company that we keep. 
I believe the phrase is uh, bad company corrupts good morals. We make excuses for ourselves and others that are in sin. And we erroneously believe it's okay to ignore it. Okay? And, you know, even friends and family that are addicts, we, we just constantly make excuses for them. Um, again, it, it doesn't matter who it is. And it could be our own selves. We're a sin-coddling society, and we need to stop it. Even, even in a police field, I see every once in a while we'll maybe stop a car that has a firearm, a, you know, a legal gun or drugs or some type of contraband, and you know, maybe four, four of the kids that are in the car, they get locked up, and, and I'll see one kid and say, hey, how did you get messed up with these, these people? You know, you, you came from a good family, you were always a good kid, what happened? You know, these are the neighborhood troublemakers. But it, it's, it's, it has that, sin has that effect. It, 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 the, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, okay? Um, it could be that the other friends talked him into it, or it could have been a, 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 an outcropping of the kid's own heart where he, wa- he wanted to be rebellious, and he, he got in with that crowd. So you see it all the time. Uh, another thing is with the Canaanites, what they represent, and you've heard this a lot, they represent sin, they represent sin. But what the Canaanites also represent is any impediment to spiritual growth and the fulfillment of God's plans in our lives. And that's big, too. So hopefully you're convinced that God's plan with the Canaanites was the only option that they left open for him. Now, again, as a new believer, I started reading, and it's, I don't want to just say, hey, this is God's word, and shove it down your throat and say, and most of you are mature Christians, probably all of you, um, but the point is that I also want to explain it, because that's what God puts teachers to do, to explain it, to help it to be more digestible. As a new believer, I read a lot of, a lot of this with the Canaanites, and I, it bothered me, you know, in my, in my heart. I was like, boy, that seems cruel, until I really understood and now that I see the world in the eyes of terrorism, and I could sit here and go and tell you, especially in law enforcement, what these terrorists actually do to each other and innocent people, but it would really make your stomach turn. And how they teach their kindergarten-age children to blow people up and to hate people that, that are different from them. Now I understand what he was doing with the Canaanites. I understand it. Uh, but again, it's God's word. I don't have to understand it. It is what it is. I just have to accept it and trust him that he has a good reason for this. And even more important, I hope that you can see, I hope that we can see and apply to our lives how we can utterly destroy the Canaanites from our own lives in the sense of that impediment to spiritual growth and fulfillment of God's plan in our lives. Let's pray. pray. It is what it is.